We're going to be continuing through the book of Ephesians. So I'm going to read Ephesians 5. And starting, I'm going to shrink Ephesians today because we're going to be using another text as our primary uh, scripture to look at. But I'm going to read through Ephesians 5, verses 21 to 33. Verse 21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. And to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does for the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and will be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. So today's topic is how to thrive in a spiritually mixed marriage. So we've been exploring what it means to have spirit-filled marriages, but I have heard the question directly and indirectly, this is this is a really helpful series. If both my spouse and I are Christian and we're on the same page and we're moving forward together, but we're not. That's not the context that I find myself in. So how am I supposed to apply what I'm learning? How are we supposed to apply this in a spiritually mixed marriage? And that's a good question. A spiritually mixed marriage can kind of take three forms. The first is a Christian is married to someone who's not a Christian, right? So a Christian and an unbeliever. The second is a Christian who's married to a spouse who has abandoned their faith in significant ways or a Christian who's married to another Christian and they're both committed to Jesus but they're on very, very different pages as it relates to how faith is supposed to work itself out in their marriage, with their finances, how they um, spend their time where they should be serving, parenting styles, maybe th- uh, some theological discussions. So today what I want to do is I want to focus on Scripture's counsel to Christians married to non-Christians or unbelievers because I think the counsel there is still very instructive for all three of those um, instances of finding yourself in a spiritually mixed marriage. So this is where we're going to go this morning. I want to talk about three things that a text from 1 Corinthians highlights for us. And that is, we're not to leave our marriage. We're to seek the peace and prosperity of our marriage or our spiritually mixed marriages. And we're to follow Jesus and shine in our spiritually mixed marriages. And so the text that really we're going to look at in depth is 1 Corinthians 7, verses 12 to 16. I'm going to read it. Paul has just finished a segment in 1 Corinthians 7 where he's talked to Christians who are married and Christians who are unmarried. And so he starts by saying, to the rest, 
Not I, to the rest I say, I, not the Lord, if any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she's willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who's not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or the sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, how do you know husband, whether you will save your wife? So the first counsel and command that this scripture gives us if we find ourselves in a spiritually mixed marriage is don't leave. Don't abandon the marriage simply because you're now on very different pages spiritually. Now this is obviously speaking to a situation where the early Christians uh, thought, okay, I wasn't a Christian, I'm, I, was, I was married, now I've become a Christian, and now I'm kind of surrounded in my household by non-Christians, so maybe it would be better for me to extract myself, to divorce myself from these non-Christians, because doesn't my allegiance to Jesus override my allegiance to my spouse and even my children, and how will I be able to maintain my allegiance to Jesus if I'm surrounded by all these pagans? Paul writes about this in his second letter, which is probably more his third or fourth letter to the Corinthian church, and as a general principle about entering into a relationship with non-Christians, especially as it relates to marriage, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, don't be yoked together with unbelievers. A yoke was an instrument where you put two, let's say, oxen together, and so they would work together. So to be unequally yoked, like you don't put a, you wouldn't yoke an oxen with a sheep because they're two totally different kinds of animals and it's going to make the work harder. So he says, don't be yoked together with an unbeliever. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship does light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. And God has said, I will live with them and walk among them and I will be their God and they will be my people. So therefore, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing and I will receive you. So Paul, in counseling Christians who are considering moving into, it doesn't have to be marriage, but significant, maybe it's a business partnership, significant partnerships with unbelievers, Paul says that's unwise because you are just coming, your beginning, middle, and ends of your purpose in life is very different. And so you can imagine how these Christians thought, okay, well, now that I'm a Christian in my marriage and I'm surrounded by these unclean, contaminating pagans, Maybe it's God's will for me to divorce and to leave the marriage, right? Should I jettison my marriage for Jesus? Is that kind of what God's will is for my life? And Paul says very, very clearly, no, that is not God's will for you. If any brother has a wife who's not a believer, but she's willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who's not a believer and she's willing to live with, uh, he's willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. 
For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her husband. That's a pretty powerful message because what Paul is saying is that even though you might be tempted to think that, well, because my spouse isn't a Christian or we're not on the same page, and you know, we have a, not only do we have a less than ideal relationship, but we have kind of an unworkable situation. He says, no, God's power is at work in and through you in your marriage. Remember the, remember the scriptural theme Paul is saying, light overcomes the darkness. N.T. Wright says, as with Jesus' healings, when he touched the lepers, and why it was a scandal for Jesus to touch the lepers is that you don't touch unclean things in the Old Testament because when you touch something unclean, the uncleanness from the leprosy spreads to you. But what happens when Jesus touches lepers? They're healed because the power of God and the, what N.T. Wright calls God's new life overcomes the uncleanness. And Paul is invoking that theme. Now that the gospel's been rede- revealed in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, we know that the light overcomes the darkness. You don't have to be intimidated or worried that somehow on a spiritual level your non-Christian spouse is corrupting you spiritually or because there's more non-Christians in your household than you, then that kind of tips the scales. Paul's like, no, 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 no. Like light overcomes the darkness. And he uses really strong language. He says, your spouse is sanctified. Your children are not unclean. They are holy. I mean, Paul is literally saying, when you go home to your non-Christian spouse today and they say, what did you learn about in church? You can say, I learned that you are literally blessed to be married to me. Right? That is the text. It's hashtag scripture, proof text. And Paul says sanctified, and that word has a a broad range, but it usually means that which is set apart for God. And so when he says that the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, believing wife, or vice versa, he's not saying they're saved because you're a Christian, that kind of imports salvation onto that person. But what it does mean, as one commentator said, is this is that spouses who are not believers and children who are not believers, incoming under the the influence of even one Christian parent or one Christian spouse, are now within the sphere of God's love and power in the gospel in a unique way. It doesn't make them automatically Christian. It doesn't make them saved, and we know that because Paul in verse 16 says, who knows whether or not through your efforts your spouse will become saved. So when he's saying sanctified, he doesn't mean saved, but he is saying you can be confident that God is powerfully using you in your marriage, in your spiritually mixed marriage, and all the complications that, that, that arise because of that. God is at work. God is for you. God is for your marriage. And in a way that is mysterious, you are having an influence whether or not you recognize it or not. So you can't leave. Don't just leave because you want to protect your Christian identity. And maybe some of us are tempted to, aren't tempted to like literally divorce and leave the marriage, but you can leave in other ways, right? I mean, you can kind of emotionally tune out. You can leave um, relationships like that um, by withdrawing emotionally, by sort of giving up by being like, well, I guess this is just the way it's going to be forever. And I think the counsel is still the same. Don't give up. Don't leave. 
Don't withdraw. God is at work. You don't have to simply accept that um, you're doomed into some kind of second-class marriage scenario. That is not how Paul wants early Christians and us to see our marriages. God is at work in and through you. But Paul says, hey, listen, if they decide to leave, let them go. If on a level of principle or for whatever reason, they say, I don't want to be married to you now that you've become a Christian, then he says, let them go. And the reason is really, really significant. And it has a lot of implications for all marriages. He says in verse 15, let them go. The believer isn't bound to kind of fight for the marriage if the other person says, I want out of this because God has called us to live in peace. That's kind of a bottom line for Paul as it relates to household relationships, which can become a hermeneutical lens through which we begin to ask the question, what does God want for our marriages and our families? He wants households of peace. And we'll talk about that more in the coming weeks, but that's a really key principle that shows God's intention for all marriages. And it leads into the second point, which is that we are called to seek the peace and prosperity of our marriage. God has called us to live in peace, and that theme is one that reverberates throughout Scripture. Of course, one of the titles that Isaiah the prophet bestows on the coming Messiah, Jesus, is he will be called the Prince of Peace. Many of Jesus' miracles, like the calming of the storm, are miracles where Jesus enters a place of chaos and death and replaces the chaos and death or overcomes it through peace, calming the storm, raising the dead to life. And so peace becomes this really important foundation through which we understand what we're trying to cultivate in our marriages. Jeremiah 29 is actually pretty instructive here. Here's the context for Jeremiah 29. God's people have just been taken over by the empire of Babylon. Babylon is now extracting a number of the majority of the Jewish population from Jerusalem and the promised land to Babylon, far, far away to the east. And they're going to be there for about seven decades. They're going to be there for 70 years. And so God, through the prophet Jeremiah, has a message for God's people who are being exiled, ripped from their homeland, and now placed in a context for at least two generations. In Jeremiah, Jeremiah 29, God says, This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those that I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Here are the instructions. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have called you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you will prosper. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to your dreams, to the dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, says the Lord. Okay, so first, notice in verses 5 to 7, when God is placing his people in a long-term situation that is less than ideal, they're now in a dominantly pagan culture surrounded by people who are steeped in what they would understand as completely anti-God idolatry. God says, okay, when I 
place you in that context, surrounded by those who do not share your faith, God says, I want you to just preach on them every day. Just lean into them. No, he doesn't say that, does he? He says, I want you to embed yourself and invest in that context and in that culture. Plant gardens, build houses, make yourself part of the community. Marry, have children, increase. There isn't actually a high pressure call to evangelism as much as cultivating long-term slow influence and impact. God is putting his people in a context so that over time, the surrounding pagan culture observes, not just with words, but predominantly through action, that these people must be connected to the living God because their way of life is so different and it's so distinctive than what they're used to. God is saying to his people, I want you to be a slow and faithful witness long term. And I think that's a good way of thinking about your role as a Christian in a spiritually mixed marriage. And there's a text in 1 Peter 3 that mirrors that same emphasis. So Peter throws out the example of what happens when a wife in a, uh, a marriage where both people weren't Christian, what happens with, when a wife becomes a Christian? What should she do? And 1 Peter 3, verses 1 to 4 says, Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives. And when they see the purity and reverence of your lives, your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes, but rather it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. And I think he's using the example of wives to husbands, but I think there's a lot there that you can learn if you're a Christian husband with an unbelieving wife. But notice that he says, don't rely on lots of words. Don't think that if you just keep talking about it or bringing it up in awkward ways or pressing your spouse, that's going to attract them to Christ. And don't rely on kind of cultural gimmicks outward adornment, like how can I influence my spouse? Maybe if I do these like things and worry about these externalities. Peter says, no, don't do that. Pursue Christ and pursue inner transformation so that over time they're won over by your behavior, by the outward manifestation of inner transformation in Christ. Allow God's work in your life to flow out so that its beauty will slowly but powerfully kind of lure your spouse from, I'd never become a Christian. Well, probably wouldn't become a Christian. Likely won't become a Christian. But if I did, I'd probably want to at least read some of the stuff my spouse is reading because that seems to have worked for him or her. And, uh, and it keeps going until through that influence, you bring people to the point where they say, maybe I want to become a Christian. And again, Ephesians 2, 10 is instructive here. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And you can contextualize that for being in a spiritually mixed marriage. If you're a Christian in a spiritually mixed marriage, you are there to do good works. You are there to serve your spouse and to overwhelm your spouse through your efforts in terms of helping them to see the goodness and grace of God. Your purpose 
is to live in such a way that over time you attract your spouse into a relationship with God or into a renewed relationship with God or a deeper relationship with God. And the testimony of the New Testament is clear throughout about this, that the well-being of a marriage should be enhanced if one person becomes a Christian in the marriage. It shouldn't be a cause for increased conflict. Let's go back to verse 15. Again, notice that it says, if your spouse wants to leave, let them go. But that's only on the condition (laughs) that your spouse wants to leave because they actually are offended by the gospel itself and not just because since becoming a Christian, you've just become a really much more annoying person. And now they're like, well, it was fine before, but since you've become a Christian and you're nagging me to go to church or leaving Bible tracts under the pillow or strategically leaving books open to husbands who need to repent, a little devotional, you know, it's like them wanting to leave is justified. Paul says, listen, if they want to leave because they don't want to have anything to do with Jesus, you let them go. But they should not want to leave a relationship if you've become a Christian because being a Christian should enhance their experience of being in that marriage relationship. And how do we seek the peace and prosperity of our marriage? Well, we're kind of, part of it is what we're doing here on Sundays, learning what that looks like in our marriage. But in a nutshell, it's just growing in your own capacity to learn to love your spouse well, which is something that if you're married, spiritually mixed marriage or not, you should be doing. We should be having conversations with our friends and accountability partners and looking up articles and reading books and you know, maybe going to counseling sessions or going to conferences like they were yesterday at the junction. Take advantage of opportunities to grow in your capacity to love your spouse. And if you're a Christian in your relationship, what you don't do is to say, well, fine, I'll do that if they, if they do it too. It's like, no, you take the initiative. You win your spouse over through your desire to be a fantastic spouse and a conduit of God's grace. And then what follows then from that is is the third point, which is follow Jesus and shine in your marriage. And again, you can kind of take the themes of Jeremiah 29, of seeking the peace and prosperity of the city or your marriage, and then dovetailing it with verse 16, which says, hey, who knows whether or not you will lead your spouse to be saved because of the way that you're living. And the emphasis there is that you follow Jesus in your marriage. I'm in a spiritually mixed marriage. Uh, Maybe I should take my pedal off the whole discipleship thing and it's just gonna be awkward and I'll just kind of keep my faith. I'll just go to church on Sundays and that'll be, it's like, no. Your allegiance is ultimately to Jesus, but that should work itself out in the marriage in a way that is winsome and caring and kind. And that was a a controversial idea in the first century because the cultural baseline, especially for, well, really only for women, if you were a woman, it didn't matter what your own religious commitments were, you took the religion of your husband because he was the head of the household. And so when Paul, the Holy Spirit through Paul is saying, no, give your first allegiance to Jesus. Don't leave, but you don't adopt the religion of your husband just because he's your husband. That was a powerful empowerment for women to say, oh, so Jesus does come first, but I'm not gonna use that Jesus comes first as a way to push my spouse away. I now have a new mission field to love my spouse and lead them towards Jesus. 
After the resurrection, Jesus goes to his disciples and he says to Peter in John 21, follow me. And Peter looks around the room and he points at John and he says, Lord, what about him? And Jesus says, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You follow me. And that's sometimes a word that we need to hear in our own spiritually mixed marriages. Jesus says, you know, Tim, follow me. And Tim's like, well, yeah, but you need to call my spouse too, Jesus. What about her? Listen, I'm doing my own thing in her life. What is that to you? You follow me. You're not responsible for making her come to faith. That's not going to happen. I'm at work in her life. You follow me. Part of my calling is going to be you to be a source of blessing towards her. But you are to keep Jesus first. And so we are to prioritize our commitment to Christ. And as much as it depends on us, again, this theme again, Romans 12, 18, live at peace with all people. As much as it depends on you, live at peace with your spouse while prioritizing your own faith personally. Not necessarily privately, but personally. Philippians 2, 12 to 15, is, I think is also instructive for spiritually mixed marriages. Paul writes to the church in Philippi, Therefore, dear friends, as you have always obeyed me, not only in my presence, but now in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So point number one, continue to follow Jesus. Work out the implications of your salvation. Don't just give up and say, well, I guess I'm in a spiritually mixed marriage and it's less than ideal and if my spouse was a Christian and all my kids were a Christian and we were all on fire for Jesus, then I could follow Jesus, but I'm kind of just stuck and dragged down by all these spiritual millstones. Womp, womp. It's like, no. You work out your salvation with fear and trembling. God is at work in your life. Do not give up. Do not leave. Press forward. Be a source of blessing. Verse 13, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose in your spiritually mixed marriage. Do everything in your spiritually mixed marriage without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. And then, within your spiritually mixed marriage, you will shine like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. So there's this real dynamic tension that we Follow Jesus, but be careful not to do so in a way that alienates or dismisses or is demeaning towards our spouse. But we follow Jesus and don't allow the overall momentum of being in a spiritually mixed relationship to just increasingly make our commitment to Jesus smaller, smaller, more private, more sequestered until it's basically just something that, a commitment that we hold in our own heart. That's not a faithful witness either. We're to shine like stars. We're to be a warm, vibrant, light, attractive presence within your marriage. And, and again, please hear that. I'm not just talking about Christians in mixed marriages. That's part of your ambition if you are in an equally yoked marriage. Part of your calling is to shine like a star in your marriage. And that means don't be a stumbling block, right? Is your walk with Christ bright? Is your relationship with Jesus making you a more enjoyable person to live with and not just simply a more religious person? Because the vision is that Jesus so changes our hearts that 
if we find ourselves in a situation where everyone else in our household was very antagonistic towards the gospel, maybe not in the short, short term, but in the medium and long term, they would be slowly won over because they would say, you know what? I don't know if I believe the Jesus stuff. Um, I think it's weird or I'm dead set against it, but I have to admit I have seen a tremendous amount of growth from this person and not just growth in kind of like a maturing way, but like they have brought a new kind of life and energy and passion and joy into this relationship. I would have never imagined myself saying this, but since my spouse became a Christian, our family and marriage, marriage is better off. And that is the vision of the New Testament. Spiritually mixed marriages present many challenges and many hardships, and I don't want to minimize those, but there is good news for those of you who find yourself in that situation. God is with you. God is for you. God is for your marriage. And so don't leave. Seek the peace and the prosperity of your marriage and follow Jesus, Jesus and shine like a star in your marriage. Let's pray. God, our marriages are often the arenas where you do the deepest and most difficult and most stretching work in our lives. And I pray for those this morning who find themselves in a spiritually mixed marriage, and I know that can play out on the spectrum from this feels like a unbelievable chaotic storm and hardship all the way to like we've kind of found ways for it to work but I don't really have a vision for how I follow Jesus in that context and I pray that there would be something from this message that would just bring to clarity another step that they can take in terms of following you in a way that allows them to shine and to be a source of blessing and to attract their spouse uh, into a relationship with you. Help us in all of our marriages, God. Um, we don't sometimes even know what we ought to pray as it relates to our marriages, but we want to follow you faithfully in and through that important arena of life. Uh, fill us with your spirit so that we can do it. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, Jeff. Please stand and sing with us. <laughs>